Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. We were young and soldiers called to dedicate our lives In the name of God and country Do what's just, boys Go do what's right A hot band of brothers Waiting on our chance To add one more page unto the victory dance Here am I, Lord, send me Send me Victory lies in the spirit of the lives of the men who died for me This is Michael Broderick, Marine Corps veteran, actor, and former Gallant Few board member. You're listening to The New American Veteran, produced by Gallant Few, in partnership with the Heroes Media Group. Now, here's Carl Monger. One thing I've learned is that the secret to this whole thing is that there's no secret. You gotta put in the work, you gotta be aware, you gotta make steps forward. And, uh, and things tend to work out really well for you when, you when you own this. To create something and to build something, you have to first envision it. You have to envision what you're going to create and then take action on that. The, the transition can be, can be tricky, as anybody in here can attest to. So for those of you that are going through it now or are on the cusp of going through it, just know you're, you're not alone in any way, shape, or form. Don't be too prideful to where you can't reach out and seek help. Let's just get to work and let's solve problems. Let's be a problem solver. Be serious about, your, about what you're doing. Be serious about those steps and what stage you're in and, and handle it. Live a very good life. Take care of your life, take care of your health, take care of yourself, and then everything will kind of fall into place. You have to own your own mission you have to have your own passion. For me, it's been about how do I keep my sense of purpose? But if you can focus on that and get yourself right, you're gonna be so much better for the people around you and you're gonna be 100% deserving of this and, and so much more. service to other veterans and 
and as a, a public servant, um, and he wanted to do that as a part of the Hometown Heroes program for the United States Air Force Thunderbird. Uh, you know, this opportunity came to me because I, I'm out there, uh, you know, helping other veterans and serving my students. Hey, this is Carl Monger with Gallant Fuse, the New American Veteran. It's my privilege today to bring Nicholas Moore onto the show. Nicholas is a Second Ranger Battalion veteran who has recently written a book that's about to be released that's called Run to the Sound of the Guns. Nick, welcome to the New American Veteran. Thanks, Carl, for having me. 
Uh, so tell me a little, give me a little brief background of your military service. Uh, I enlisted in uh, 1999 and went through all the prerequisite stuff. And then, uh, you know, um, was lucky enough to get asked which battalion I wanted to go to. And so I spent my entire career at Second Ranger Battalion until uh, uh, November of 2013 when I was medically retired. And uh, so you're a pre-9-11 guy. So where were you on September 11th? Uh, September 11th, I was on uh, the second day of Ranger School. Now, tell me about that. Uh, well, you know, that was kind of one of those moments where standing outside waiting to go do uh, land navigation. And, uh, you know, it's well past the time hack. And we're kind of going, okay, well, what's going on? You know, you know, Ranger doesn't like to just stand around. And that's usually when we get in trouble for doing, you know, Ranger stuff. Uh, then the RIs come out of the hooch and, and they're, uh, you know, they're like, Hey, uh, somebody just crashed a plane into the world trade center. Does anybody have any family that works there? And we're like, what, wait, what? No, no. And you know, and you know, um, you know, they come back out, you know, a few minutes later when the second plane hits and they ask the question again and they said, we're going to war because somebody's just attacked us with this. And we're like, ha, 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 funny, you know, false motivation, the whole thing. And then, you know, time goes on and then they ask about, does anybody have parents that, you know, work at the Pentagon? And it was kind of struck home there for a minute because one of the one of the kids raised his hand and said, yeah, my dad works there. And they said, you need to come inside and call him. And I mean, for anybody that knows anything about Ranger School, this is a, you don't just get to make random phone calls until the end of the course or the end of the phase. And that he, the, you know, the fact that they're bringing him inside to make a phone call to see if his dad's alive. I think that finally struck a chord that this isn't, they're not making this up and that this is real. Um, and they knew that we didn't really believe him. So they, you know, rolled the TV on the TV card outside on the, on the deck and uh told a couple of guys to go to actually go take a look and so that they could confirm that what they're telling us is real and and it was like oh you know but it, in in retrospect i mean it, you know in hindsight it, it gave us all the motivation we didn't need false motivation or you know we had a drive now it was uh, all right we have a purpose and i can't be stuck here for you know the proverbial six months in ranger school you know i got i gotta get back i i gotta I got to get back because I know that we're going to go. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was in ranger school during Grenada. So we were sitting at a, we were sitting at a, a chalk waiting to get it on a Blackhawk in mountain phase. And, uh, and, and we'd gone through all the safety briefings and everything else. And we're just sitting there waiting. And the RI looks at us kind of smugly. And he says, so does anybody want to know what's going on in the world? And we said, yeah, sure. And he said, well, first off, how many of you are second lieutenants? And, you know, they never ask that question, right? Because you don't talk rank. And so a couple of us held up our hands and they said, well, you better pay attention because second lieutenants are dying in Grenada. And, uh, you know, they're going to need you when, you when you get out of ranger school. So it was, uh, yeah, what you know, talk about an attention grabbing moment and what brought it right to reality, what you're getting ready to do. Yeah, it was. They did the same thing again when uh, 375 jumped on on Kandahar Objective Rhino. We were we had just finished mountains and we were getting piers and and all that stuff. And they rolled the TV out again and they said, "Hey, you guys need to come watch this." And you know, 
the first bat guys and the second bat guys, you know, we are, we've, we've already, you know, the Colonel of the regimental commanders already said who's going. So we knew it wasn't either of our two battalions. So we're kind of laughing and the guys from three, seven, five are crying. You know, they're, they got tears. They're like, we missed all of it. And, you know, it became the question of why are you guys laughing? It's like, we haven't missed anything. It's not our turn yet. Uh, amazing shared experience from a different time frame, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the one fear that everybody had prior to 9-11 was that you would go to ranger school and you would be stuck there like the guys, you know, when, when you were there for Grenada and the guys that were there when, when they went to Panama. And, you know, who would have thought this thing would be going on 17 years later? I mean, right. you know, historically speaking, Grenada lasted for six weeks. Panama was a six-week operation. And I think the longest after that was Mogadishu was, what, eight weeks? Three, three, eight weeks, 90 days, something like that. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't huge. A lot, a short lot that you'd miss it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, the book, so you, you medically retired in 2013. Yeah, and, from uh, injuries I received in uh, 2011. And, uh, and that, if you don't mind here, I want to read just a little bit out of the prologue of your book because I've got sure. it up on my screen. Uh, October 8, 2011, Tangi, Tangi, is that right? Tangi or Tangi? However you say that, Valley, Wardock Province, Afghanistan. The three-round burst from an AK inside the compound slams hard into me, punches me back, spins me around, thumps me off balance like a marionette manipulated by invisible strings. My helmet's night vision device is knocked out. It's comforting green hue extinguished. I shouldn't have stretched my leg across the gate opening the way I just did. My bell is rung and everything moves in slow motion. That's a pretty uh, attention-grabbing opening to the book. I mean, it kind of indicates that's a, a fascinating first paragraph. I'm excited to get a chance. And I scanned the book ahead of time, but I'm excited to get a chance to actually get in-depth and read it all. Um, how does a ranger decide he's going to put this down on paper and write a book? Uh, most everybody thinks we speak in one-syllable words. Yeah, I'm... I'm I kind of toyed with the idea. Actually, the whole thing came about. I was down in Texas. I got asked to, Tim Abel asked me to, if I would be a guest on uh, Grateful Nation on his uh, show on Outdoor Channel. And I was like, oh, absolutely. You know, you know, fellow ranger wants to go hunt some deer. I bring my son along, you know, when we're off camera, hanging out in the evenings, waiting for the next day. You know, Tim's like, well, tell me a little bit about what you've done. And so I said, well, you know, we did 2002, did the initial invasion, because that's still, you know, early 2002 was still the invasion because we're still rolling forces out of staging bases and putting boots on the ground in country and, you know, establishing the American footprint. You know, that rolls through. And then 2003, we invade Iraq. Um, participate in the Jessica Lynch rescue and, you know, things start going along, you know, 2005 rolls around. I participate in the rescue and recovery of Marcus Luttrell in the crash for uh source turbine three, three call sign. Um, you know, running and gunning in Iraq, chasing, you know, terror cells and, and all that stuff. And then um, the extortion crash in 2011, we were boots on the ground prior to the crash. And um, seals were coming into, um, you know, five about five k away to uh, start a whole nother target, and um, you know the helicopter gets shot down, and so we end up, you know, aborting our mission and and you know basically move to the crash to um, secure and recover it. Uh, so we, I'm just telling Tim all this stuff, and he's like, "Man, you need to write a book." 
And I was like, uh, yeah, that's probably not going to happen because, you know, Ranger doesn't want to put a whole ton of effort into something that's probably never going to get printed. And uh, so, you know, I'm about a couple couple years go by and uh, Tim Tim hits me up on a text. He's like, hey, I got a friend who's uh, who's an author. I was telling him a little bit about you and he wants to, you know, is it OK if I give him your number? And I said, sure. And so. Um, Mir hits me up and uh, he's like, hey, I, th I think you really have a great story here that needs to be shared. And I, I'm almost positive we can get this published if you want to if you want to tell it. And I said, well, let's see what we can do. And so uh, that was early 2015. So then, um, you know, he puts all the pieces together in the literary world and the, throws the pitch out. And I think within four four hours somebody bought on it they were like yeah let's do this and i was like wow okay i guess we're writing a book so talk about that process a little bit what what uh as you went through did you just sit down and just start typing on a laptop or did you kind of put an outline together I had kind of kept some rough notes over the years and, you know, the army green notebooks and, and stuff like that. Nothing that was classified, but just kind of, you know, memorable things that we had done over the years that would, you know, just mostly so that I could remember what I had done. Cause we had been doing so much, um, you know, like running in Iraq. I mean, you were averaging, you know, the 90 day operation cycle, you're averaging over a hundred missions. So just trying to put things together so that I could, you know, later in life, I could have notes so that I could tell my kids all the things that I had done or, or, you know, along that lines, it wasn't ever so I could write a book. It was just more so that I could keep my memories in chronological order because things always start to bleed together. So I had those and um, uh, I used that and I started, you know, writing some things out and then we started putting the chapters together and um, um, that took, I was probably a six month six or eight months to, to put it all together. And then we had to send it to, you know, DOD for, for review. And then they held on to it for another nine months. And so we missed our original publication date, which was supposed to have been uh, September last year. As you went through that process and you're remembering stories and you're looking at notes and events that happened, did that bring up anything? Did you have trouble now that you're remembering things in depth, did that create any issues? I mean, I started, you know, when we were all the way through the whole thing, the first time I, I was, I, you start getting angry because, you know, well, at least I did, um, you know, for the, it's, you know, the good and the bad, I laughed, you know, had a good time remembering all the good stuff, but, you know, along with the good stuff, you have to remember all the bad stuff too. And it just, it's, you know, brings back those frustrations and those moments of anger and, um, but I think once I got through and I finally like told everything to somebody that wasn't in my family, um, it kind of lifted a big, you know, that big invisible weight that sits on, on all of us. And so I, I, I think it's a, it's been, I guess, cathartic, if you will. There's a Vietnam veteran as a friend of mine that a couple of years ago. I asked him if he would tell his story about Vietnam to a group and he had never done that before. And he was a gunship helicopter pilot and he saw and did some things that he didn't want to remember. And he lost his crew chief. And through the process of him telling that story, he 
he had, like I said, he had never done it before. He was very nervous about doing it. He got emotional the first time he did it. But then it was like it opened up something inside of him and it made him much more open to talk about things that he had suppressed for a long period of time. So I think it is cathartic, like you said, to be able to get your story out, whether you're telling it to someone that's outside of your family. And the fact that you can talk about it within your family is also important to be able to do that. Uh, but to be able to write it down, capture it, write it down, it's almost like you're letting it go some so that it it makes it easier long term to process. Yeah. And, I, you know, my wife has really been there for me the whole time through my whole career. And she never let me um, not share anything. She she made me share all the things, you know, because she followed the news to to make sure that things were going OK. And, and so when big the big events were happening and, you know, um, Marcus Luttrell crash or, and, you know, that whole thing in 2005 and then the crash again in 2011. I mean, she knew where I was and, you know, and, and based on, you know, you know, Navy SEALs crashing and, and things like that, she knew that I was involved in it probably. And so she never let me not talk about it. She made me talk about it. So I, I think, you know, her forcing the subject along over the years has, has really helped too. Can you talk a little bit about your transition out if you got injured and then ultimately medically retired? Uh, some of the guys that I've spoken with, that is a really difficult thing for them to deal with being medically selected out of the unit that they've been a part of for so long. Can you talk a little about how that process went for you? Yeah, I was, um, you know, I got shot and, you know, got taken away from being a platoon sergeant so that I could do, um, rehabilitation and, and all the things that I needed to do for myself. So I moved over and was running the S2 shop um, for for a few months. And then some um, issues happened with a platoon sergeant and um, Alpha Company. And so things um, kind of got moved around. And so they needed an E7. And um, the sergeant major at the time asked me if, you know, if I was good to go, that we needed a sniper platoon sergeant and somebody to deploy on this next deployment. And I was like, yeah, it gave the ranger answer of yes. I am absolutely ready to go, which I wasn't, but you know, you can't tell a ranger no. So I, I deployed and um, doing an L and O job. I, uh, I got in, an infection in my leg where I'd been shot and uh, spent a couple of weeks down in Kanhar getting medication to take the infection out. And uh, that was my last deployment 2012. And I'm running around on the, you know, back at home training snipers and uh, I'm kind of, I'm limping around really bad and I, I'm thinking I'm doing a good job of hiding what's wrong with me. And my company commander and first sergeant had just pulled up to the range to, you know, check on training and see what we were up to. And uh, they called me on it. And so they said, you need to go see the doc when we get home. So I went down and talked to the battalion surgeon. He said, you know, we're going to get you to, in to see a neurologist and, um, so I go to the appointment and, you know, he just blatantly, he does a few tests and he just blatantly asked me, do you want to walk when you're 40? And I said, well, yeah, he said, well, you need to stop now. And it was very eye opening at that point. You know, it's either I continue to fight to do what I've always done and, you know, continue in the Ranger way of, you know, mission first unit first. And it was, you know, okay, well, now I need to start thinking about me. And so I went, uh, uh, 
into the med board process, which only lasted for, for mine, was only um, eight months. So I went to the, the doctor, it was like early, early February 2013. And by, you know, September, as the battalion's deploying back from their deployment in 2013, I'm, I'm on 30 days notice that I'm out of the army. And um, so that was, that was kind of it. It's difficult to be there in that environment, knowing everybody else is going back to war and you're not. Yeah, it is. It's definitely hard. And then you have to explain this to people that you've known for years that are, you know, the the sergeant major or the incoming sergeant major or commanders and platoon sergeants and first sergeants, guys that are expecting you to just, you know, continue to be there like they are. And it's like, that's not going to happen anymore. So after you get out, sorry, I'm getting a little bit of feedback there. When you, uh, after you separated and you're now out, you walk away from the army. Can you talk a little bit about that process? And one of the things I'm interested in is if you have any advice or guidance, your own after action review lessons learned from your transition that another ranger or somebody that's leaving the military would find useful in their transition. Um. I don't know. When I got out, it was, for me, it was kind of a good timing, I guess, if you will. I'm a huge outdoors guy. I love to hunt and, and all that stuff. So I got out and it was right in the middle of uh, duck hunting season. So I kind of, you know, used that as the, the buffer of, you know, a way to still get out of the house and kind of do my own thing for a little bit and just kind of, you know, I guess, if you will, de-stress, unwind, um, kind of, I guess, process what had just happened i'm no longer a part of you know what i was what does it mean to you know what is being a veteran now what's that mean for me what am i going to do to support my family all these kind of things and then still trying to i'm still working through the va process to you know enroll in the va system and um all those kind of things so i i guess the big thing is is you go from such a high speed you know, high tempo life to it's like throwing the car in neutral on the freeway and then just coasting to a stop. It's like, what am I supposed to do now? I haven't really thought this far ahead. It was always, you know, what's the next mission? What's the next objective? What's the next training operation? And where, where are we going on the next appointment? You know, all these things. And then it's taken away from you and you're like, Oh, I don't know. It's kind of like, I guess, a midlife crisis where, but I'm only like 31. Um, so I hunting season worked and then I didn't really start to, I guess, like panic, if you will, until um, the spring of 2014. It was like, what am I gonna do? And so, you know, I continued to go through the VA system and, and test out um, some, some issues that I was having or things that I was, trying to say I didn't have my wife's like, no, you need to get checked for this and you need to get checked for that. And you have problems here. And it's like, okay. So, um, the VA, uh, retired me at, um, I have 9% disability, but, um, I have the unemployable cause I have a TBI and some short-term memory issues that, uh, are keeping me from actually <laughs> being a little bit more productive than what I am. But one of the things that I, I want to touch on there, your wife forced you to get some things checked out that you 
didn't want to, or maybe you either didn't want to face or didn't recognize well, she it was, yourself. Yeah, she was seeing some issues that I was having that I didn't think were a big deal, and she was, you know, looking at me objectively and and telling me that I had, you know, memory problems and I wasn't remembering things, you know, correctly or. I was forgetting a lot of things. Like I really started to notice it when I would go to the grocery store to get some things and I'd roll into the parking lot and I'd park the truck. And then it's like, I'd have to call her and say, what am I getting at the store again? I have no idea. I remember like one thing and she'd rattle off like eight or 10 things. And it became one of these, just text it to me. And it wasn't because I, you know, absentmindedly on a phone business phone calls is I couldn't remember them. So yeah, so that's critical. It's important. It's important that you have somebody as an outside resource to look at you and say, "Now get this checked." So I'm glad that that happened for you. And, and again, what I'm trying, what I want to do is uh, one of those things that we emphasize with this interview. The process that we do is your lessons learned can be something that can help somebody else. So somebody else that's out there, think about it, it's normal and natural for us to not want to admit that we have an issue with anything. Yeah, well, the word, memory or anything else. We're tough guys, and and we don't want to admit that there's a problem. But the the I mean the um, you know, it takes a strong man to admit that he has a problem, and it it's not it's not weak to ask for help. I mean, if you look at it, you know, from a combat standpoint, a guy's not going to stay pinned down by a machine gun and not ask for help from somebody else that can maneuver on the situation. So why are we as, you know, young veterans, why are we sitting here suffering alone? I mean, we don't have the same, you know, uh, political stigma against what we're doing versus, you know, the guys 40 years ago, 50 years ago in, you know, Vietnam, it's, it's completely different culture and there's so many, uh, there's so, so many people out there willing to help us, and it's just a matter of getting getting over yourself to ask for help. And, you know, that's been, the, you know, for, even for me, that was the hardest thing to, to admit was that I, I needed somebody to talk to that's, you know, maybe it's not my wife for some things because they're just some things that are easier to say to another vet, somebody that understands, and so... That's great advice. Uh, let's go back to the book for a minute. When is the book coming out? Where can people get it? Uh, the book's being, uh, it's on pre-sale from uh, anybody that can do, you know, it's um, Amazon's got it on pre-sale. Google Books has it on pre-sale. Uh, Walmart has it on pre-sale. It's basically anywhere. You can pre-sale it from Barnes and Noble. Um, and it'll actually be released in bookstores on uh, November 13th of this year. Uh, 2018. So just in uh, what, two and a half months, two months. Do you have any events where you're going to be signing books? Uh, right now we're just staying local here to the, uh, to the, um, to the area to start things off. Uh, I got like one event I think is planned for de early December at the Cabela's here in, in Lacey. Um, and then uh, I think my wife's kind of running that with the marketing guys right now. She's she's really jumped in on that. So because sure I want to sure we get the word out to all of our network and our audience to go uh, and buy autographed copies of your book. 
Okay. Um, there will be, there's a uh, premier collectibles will be selling um, already pre-signed um, pre-autographed copies. Um, they'll be available November 13th from their website. And um, so I have to get some Sharpies here shortly and then they're going to send me the books to sign them all in my garage and then I'll uh, ship them off to premier collectibles and then they'll be available for pre-sale or for sale as well after the release date. Outstanding. What uh, have I not asked you that I need to ask you? What anything else that you'd like to cover or talk about? Uh, I guess like with the with the book, you know, it's like we finally get it all finished and written, and then you know we've got to go through the endorsements process and you know send it out. And I, I guess like the biggest thing that I had was you know during the whole writing process of, of the book was. Um, I, I I told Mir when we were writing it, I was like, I don't want to put a ton of profanity in this because I got kids that are going to read it. And, you know, that's probably my biggest drawback against reading people's books is that they want to write the book the way that we talked. And I, I find it to be, I don't want to offend anybody, but I find it to be ignorance when we have to write like that. If we have to use all that, then um, we probably shouldn't be writing the book anyway. Um, so we kind of kicked that around a little bit and um, um, I think maybe there's maybe 10, 10 curse words in the whole book. Um, and it was things that were quoted by other people where we used somebody else's quote, uh, you know, in the book. And other than that, we, we, you know, I guess in big people words, we, we actually use the English language for, for more than uh I guess I should say we actually just use the English language and uh, to uh, get or convey our point across without actually using the profanity because I didn't want, you know, people to go, wow, your dad talks like, you know, a sailor, <laughs> if you will. Um, so then we go through then, you know, we start finding out, you know, trying to find people who would endorse it or write the forward for the book or or all that stuff. And Mir kept saying, yo, we need to get General McChrystal to write the, the forward for the book and we need to get his endorsement on the book. And I was like, oh, why are we going to go there? <laughs> you know, because he's still, you know, and, and I always look at General McChrystal. He's, he's always, you know, he's, he's the commander. You know, he had just finished being the regimental commander when I arrived at the battalion. And, um, you know, then he's working the JSOC piece and, um, you know, then he's the, you know, the ISAF commander in Afghanistan, it's like, you know, oh, I just, and he's a super intelligent guy. It's like, I don't want him to tear this apart and tell him, tell me that I'm an idiot. Uh, and so if anybody knows anything about General McChrystal, the guy only sleeps like four hours a day. He's a machine. So we sent it to him and the next day he's throwing comments back. And I was like, oh, and it was all good stuff. I, you know, I was like, wow, I guess if, you know, we can get his thumbs up on this, I guess we actually did what we set out to do. So that was, um, you know, that kind of put me at ease, I guess, if you will. And then, you know, all the, all the endorsements in the book, I mean, Carl, you, you endorsed it. Um, and then all the other guys that are in there, um, Max Mullinger, um, Mears got some British, um, Rhodesian guys that, that endorsed it and everybody came back with the same opinion. So it's, I guess we did it right. That's a great book. 
and I can't wait to get my own hard copy. And uh, I also want to say thank you at the back because you have a place in there if somebody has, has read the book and it's reawakened some things or caused them to think about some things that are maybe causing them some sleepless night or making them want to go back to drink or something like that. There's a way they can reach out. So I appreciate sure. you including that in the tail end of the book. Absolutely. Um, you know, I guess if we could have done a whole book for just in um, veterans groups, that, that'd be a, a good seller too, at least in the, in the veterans community. Well, I've uh, wrote a book of my own called common sense transition. I'll get a copy of it off to you. I don't know if you have, uh, if you've seen that yet. I, uh, have, I, I think I, Tim, I got a link to it. I think, I think Tim sent me something. Um, I, I actually haven't, I don't, with my daughter, I don't really have a ton of time to read. And then I got a few dogs of my own running around downstairs. So I don't go online and buy it. I'll send you a copy. I'll send you. Some okay. Yeah. And, and then when you get time having a six year old uh, running around is uh, that's a handful. Yeah. And then, so I've spent a lot of my time, you know, doing that. And then my brother's getting ready to, to wrap his career up here in the next uh, nine or 10 months. So I'm Twin brother, right? Yeah. And so he's a ROTC instructor finishing up at uh, KU up in Kansas. So I'm kind of trying to help smooth his transition and answer a bunch of questions that he's got and kind of point him in the right direction. And, you know, so he doesn't feel like I did and he can, you know, have a little bit smoother transition. It's all about sharing the lessons learned. They don't it need is. to learn it the hard way. You, you already yeah. been through it. He doesn't need to do it the hard way. No. Um, so I get with the, you know, with the book, it was, uh, it was a good experience. I, I don't know, knowing what I know now, as far as like all the processes in the book, I don't know if I would do it again. Cause it's too much like being an English major. <laughs> I, I was telling uh, my wife the other night, I was like, I don't even know if I want to read it in hardback because I'm tired of reading about myself <laughs> and I just want to throw up. But uh, um, everybody that's taken a look at it so far has really enjoyed it. So I, I, um, I I've, I've enjoyed the, the process and the, I guess the whole thing behind actually doing the book was, you know, I'm not the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I got to be a part of the greatest team. I mean, I will put, I will put any Ranger platoon against any other special operations unit, and you know, if I had my pick to be on any one of those teams, I'm picking the Ranger team, and it's not because I was a member. I I've worked with all of them, and it's just you can't find better camaraderie or or guys that are motivated to this the same mission purpose. So I tried to convey that through the book that it's not about me; it was all about you know, the teams that I got to be involved in. And I don't mean like, you know, it's the platoons and the strike forces and all the, the conglomeration of all the efforts that, that, you know, we put through and that, you know, we talk in there about being part of the, the greatest single transition of a military unit in, you know, modern warfare. And it was, it wasn't even about transforming ourselves. The whole point of what we were doing was to stay relevant to the fight at hand. I mean, most of us, it was, okay, what's the enemy doing and what are they throwing at us now that was different from six months ago when we left to, okay, how do we take the lessons learned from the guys on the ground now and, and transform it and continue to morph um, and stay relevant to the fight? And, you know, after 17 years, you know, instead of being a special operations support force with, you know, all the stuff that you guys were doing in 
you know, Grenada and, and Panama, you guys were there as the, you know, the, basically the, you know, the, the main muscle, but you weren't really the, the main mission is that now, you know, we're standing shoulder to shoulder and, and running the same target sets as the rest of the guys that are in the community and doing just as good of a job. What's amazing <laughs> is back from my era, one operation, we would plan out for a month and then rehearse it uh, first in daylight and then at night. And then, you know, we'd spend hours and hours and hours going through just to do one exercise. And you guys were doing that equivalent of an exercise 10 times in a night because you find something on a target that would identify something else. And then you'd have to put together another mission and go. And, right. And, and even to start, even, even to start the whole process for the night, you know, it depends on where you are, you know, Iraq is, you know, just based on assets and distance and, you know, it's a three hour planning process and then we're out the door and, um, you know, that was the way it was when I was a private, when we got in, you know, we'd plan and rehearse all these training missions and, you know, you'd have a whole day dedicated to just, you know, walk through of, of what we're going to do and all these things. And now we have all these SOPs that everybody has memorized and everything's in place. And, and the, the operational tempo is just putting it. So, you know, plan it, brief it, dress, go, execute it, come back. And then, you know, in Iraq, it was 20 minutes to plan it drive to it, execute it, next target, next target, next target, next target, next target, you know, three or four times and, you know, got all these bad guys wrapped up and, hey, we need to come back because we, you know, we got to unload the truck. We can't fit anybody else in there. Well, we got one more for you. We need you to get before you come back. And it's like, oh, so then it's like starting to go through. You have to kind of start selecting who's coming and who's not and who's getting kicked off the truck that's already on the truck. And, you know, it's, I mean, it was fun. It was fun. It was fast paced. It was high octane, op tempo, you know, because it's no fun to go into a, somebody else's country and just sit when you could be doing something. So, um, well, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what, what you and your team, what the Ranger Regiment has accomplished. And you talked about the transformation of a force and it, during combat in such a short period of time. That That's one of the things. And, and my final thought on this is uh, one of the things that makes it so hard on men that have been assigned there is to be a part of that, to be a part of history, to be a part of making a difference, to being told by the VA that you're too broken to have a job or to try to sell telephones or whatever it is that somebody <laughs> does post-military, right? It's right. How, how do you go from that one existence to the other existence? It's extremely difficult to do. Yeah, that. you go from running around with your hair on fire at 100 miles an hour for uh, 90 to 120 days straight to put pump the brakes, and now I'm just sitting, you know, 30 feet from the finish line, and I can't get there. Yeah, it's a tough position to be in. But rediscovering purpose, writing a book certainly is a huge purpose. But rediscovering purpose is an incredibly important to healing. I want to give a big shout out to Tim Abel for getting the process started with you. What he's done with Grateful Nation is uh, phenomenal. He's, yeah, a, yeah. he's a current Gallup board member. He's a former chairman of the board for Gallup View, a good friend, and, uh, and he's a phenomenal guy. And also a big shout out to Mir uh, for helping you write the book, for helping you get it published. I've known Mir for a long time as well. So uh, you got a good partner there. 
I do. I, I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't ask for, for a better group of guys to get tied in with. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate you have for having me on Carl and, and for the help that you gave me when I was first getting out. Cause Tim told me to get in touch with you right when I was first getting out, when I was still trying to, you know, fight the process to not, you know, not be as broken as I actually am when <laughs> Because nobody wants to admit, we, nobody likes to admit that they're actually as messed up as they are, and so right. I had a you know issues with that, and I, I've come to terms with it, you know. And I I spend my days filling in the you know the 14 years I guess I missed raising with my son, and I, I get to spend all that time with and and I guess do it right with my daughter this time. So um, I'm at, I'm enjoying myself with that process. <laughs> Well, Nick, hey, thanks for being on the New American Veteran. Thanks for uh, your service to the country. More importantly, thanks for my freedom. One of my favorite things to tell a veteran is not thanks for your service because that makes me feel weird when somebody says it to me. But when I say thank you for my freedom, they're like, oh, damn straight. So thanks for my freedom. You're welcome. And thanks for, for uh, setting the ways for, for us to follow in, in all the things that you You and, call me old and, now? And Tim. You call me old? No. <laughs> We're all old. <laughs> Go be a ranger for four years and you're beat up. It's uh, like dog years, one equals seven. Yeah, something like that. It's close. <laughs> all right, Nick. Hey, thank you. I thank appreciate you. you being on the show. And uh, best of luck with the book. All right. Thanks, Carl. They teach you a lot in the service. They teach you how to stand straight and fire your rifle. They teach you respect survival. They teach you how to take a life and how to give your own. What they don't teach you is what happens when you come home. There are over two million people in the U.S. Armed Forces. For some, coming home is the hardest part. As a veteran, you are not alone. Reach out. Call a battle buddy. Take the Spartan Pledge today. For more information, visit us on the web at descendantsofsparta.com. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Thanks to Kenny Thomas for permission to use his song, Send Me, and to Michael Broderick for the intro. Thank you, Army Ranger veteran actor and Gallant Few board member Tim Abel for sending us out with Isaiah 6-8, and thanks to the Jim O'Farrell band for the Expel song, Nowhere. The New American Veteran is a Gallant Few Inc. production. All work is original or used by permission. All rights reserved. Visit www.gallantview.org for more information or to request to appear on the show.